Uh, Thank you, Father, for this season. I thank you, Father, for the annual reminder of what it took to bring us to you, that it took our Lord and Savior, the creator of all things, to become part of his creation, entering into it for one purpose above all, and that is to die for us. And we honor that at another day of the year, but in this time, we remember his arrival and celebrate it, thanking you for it. And as we consider that, and then at the same time, turn our attention to the events of the end. Uh, What a great reminder that he is the Alpha and the Omega. And we, we sit between those two moments, so that is between the beginning and the end of anything, Father, but we long to be there with him and all that will come, and we look forward to what we will see and know in that age that awaits, and even now a little foretaste of it in your scriptures. We thank you for that, too. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to the midpoint of Daniel's 70th seven, or as we call it here, the tribulation. We've reached the middle of that seven-year period, and uh, this slide behind me gives you a bit of an overview of what we've been looking at at this stage of our study. This is the midpoint now, the chapters that we're in now are the midpoint of the seven-year period that has been designated to end this age and to bring about Christ's second coming. And it's a time the prophets have spoken about for millennia. It's a time that you've already seen includes unimaginable calamity and death and destruction and mayhem. And at the center of all of that is one man who takes over the world in the process of these events, the man Antichrist. And uh, you remember we studied earlier that anyone who opposes Jesus is an Antichrist and that there is a spirit behind opposition to Christ and that spirit, Satan, is the spirit of every Antichrist. But yet, while there are many antichrists today, and always will be, or always have been, at least until Christ's second coming, there is one particular man that rises above all of them, and that man is the focus of our attention increasingly as we move into this study, as we go into the midpoint and then beyond. But for tonight, one chapter still remains before the antichrist becomes the main conversation for us in this study. And that chapter is chapter 11, tonight's chapter. Last week, we were in 10. And I told you then, that was a transition chapter that takes us out of the first half events of tribulation and moves us into this special period I call mid-trib that we know is the, big, the middle point of the seven years. And the middle point is so important that these chapters we're looking at, as I show you up on the screen, span from 10 through 15, and the heart of it is 11 to 14. 10 is an intro 15 is a summary, if you will, or a transition back into the events of the second half of tribulation. But 11 and 14, 11 to 14, that's the heart of the mid-trib chapters. And each of these chapters announces itself as a mid-trib chapter by including at least one time reference in each chapter that tells you you're at the midpoint. Remember those time references? There's three that get used recurringly. Time times half a time. 1,260 days, 42 months. One of those three ways of counting time will be included in all of these chapters. That's our indication to know we're at a mid-trib chapter, at a mid-trib chapter, and so on. So in chapter 10 last week, we saw John getting that small scroll, uh, the one that he was told to eat. These are not scrolls, these are biscuits on the screen behind me, but you get the point. Uh, 
as we learned last week, that scroll he received was originally written by the prophet Daniel. But when Daniel was writing it, he was told to seal it up and hand it back to a powerful angel for safekeeping. And then in chapter 10 of Revelation, we saw that same angel reappearing, now for the first time in thousands of years since it was the time of Daniel. And he hands that very same little scroll to John, telling him, as I said, to eat it. So symbolically, John took in the scroll that Daniel wrote. And in taking it in, he was now in a position to share it with us. That was the the idea of it. So what was that special prophecy Daniel wrote that no one could know until John was given the chance to reveal it? Well, back in Daniel, when we looked at this last week, we were told that this secret prophecy regards the second half of tribulation. And it came in that passage I read out of Daniel 12. I'm just going to remind you of one verse. In verse 7, Daniel said, I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, and as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. So the Lord told Daniel that the events in that little scroll that he wrote, the, the prophecy that he heard but couldn't tell us, they would last three and a half years. There's your, one of your three ways of marking time. And at the end of the three and a half years, Daniel was told that the events of this prophecy would end. And that means, you notice at the end of verse seven, it says all these events will be completed. So what we're learning is the scroll talked about three and a half years of time at the end. Not the first half of tribulation, but at the second half. Because when these three and a half years are over, it says all these events will be completed. So that's our indication to know Daniel was being given a detailed accounting of the last half of tribulation, even before the world knew anything about the first half, much less the details Daniel received. And that's why it was sealed up. Can you imagine the confusion if he had given us the second half of tribulation before we had any of the other details associated with it? So it was sealed up and waiting. But then that begs the question, why was Daniel involved at all then? Well, as I mentioned last week, it's so that we would know that book is closely tied to what we're studying now in Revelation. It's one of the ways in which we see these two books working together. All right, so Daniel 12, was, verse 7, was what told us it would be the second half of tribulation. But you notice also it, it reminds us of the purpose of tribulation in general. Verse 7 also said all of this calamity was directed at shattering the power of the holy people. Now, the holy people refers to Israel, God's people. And shattering, then, refers to breaking their resistance to God and to his word, to Christ specifically. So as we learned before, the ultimate outcome of tribulation is to bring Israel to faith, to fulfill the promises God has given to that nation. And the events of mid-trib and beyond, the second half, put that plan into high gear, actually bringing it to fulfillment. And then last thing I'll do by way of reminder, remember the events of mid-tribulation are centered on the three-and-a-half-year moment, but they span time on either side. We're talking about things that have to take time to happen. You know, there are events that we're going to see described in these chapters that don't happen in an instant. They happen over a period of time. Well, the midpoint of anything is a moment, not a period, right? The midpoint of seven years is three-and-a-half. The moment you hit the midpoint, it's over, and you're moving past it, right? So how do we fit stuff into it? Well, we don't, literally. You just put them on it. Sometimes they're before, sometimes they're after, sometimes they're spanning it. You'll see that from the text as we study. You'll know where to place them. But they're all associated with the midpoint. They all have some relationship 
to the midpoint of tribulation. All right, so we'll talk about each as we move through. Each of these chapters tells its own little story about what's going on at the middle of tribulation. Because they're all associated with the midpoint, they're layered on top of one another. So these are not chronological necessarily. They are sequent. They're all simultaneous is what I meant to say. They're all happening about the same time, okay? So 10 was our introduction. Now 11 begins the, the events of mid-trib. And I'm gonna start one verse back into 10 because at the very end of 10, John has now taken the prophecy that was given to Daniel and he's commanded to deliver it to us. Verse 11 of chapter 10 and then moving on, it says, and they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. All right, now let's stop there. We're getting into the beginning of this chapter, and although all the disasters of tribulation are certainly focused on Israel, they're the ultimate audience, nonetheless, the scale of what God is doing in the time of tribulation is so large, it impacts every nation, every tribe, every tongue, even kings. So John, rather, is now told, it's time for you to go back to work, and you have more things to say about what's being done in this seven-year period, and in particular now, moving into the second half. And it's all centered in one place. That is, there is one region of the world that is the focus of all the activity of mid-trib and the second half. We've moved now, as you remember from last week, we've moved now that the, the judgments of the world have reached the point at which now the whole of the world has been reduced to a very small, livable area. Most of the earth now is uninhabitable. Most of the population, at least half of the world's population we've already counted up, is now gone. So you kind of start thinking about the world in a different way. It's not the globe with people on every corner anymore. It's become increasingly a little patch, a little area of inhabitable land with a, a, a fraction of the number of people we used to have on the planet. And that place I'm talking about is centered, I'll give you one guess, Israel and what's immediately around it. And John is now moved to a place within that realm, within that patch, as I call it, to the Jewish temple. And he's told to measure it and to make note of who is worshiping there. Now, interestingly, he's told to measure it. He's given a measuring rod, in fact. But he never makes note of the measurements or tells us anything about them at any point. It's quickly apparent that he's told to measure, but the measurements aren't the point. That there's something else going on, in other words. And that point is actually much more obvious than that. The point is simply that there is a temple. The fact that he's being asked to measure it and to note that there are worshipers around it and that there is even an altar there is simply to make clear to you and to me, hey, guess what? We've got a Jewish temple on our hands here. Because the temple of Israel was destroyed in AD 70. It does not exist. It still doesn't exist today. And Orthodox Jews would dearly love to rebuild it, could, you know, should they be able to do so, but they've been unable to do so now for the better part of 2,000 years. But according to John's vision, there is a day coming, this side of Christ's second coming, not in the millennial kingdom. Now, we're talking about in this world we still know today, there is a day coming when the temple is gonna return in some form. And when it does, the Jewish nation will once again worship there before the altar of God. That's what you're learning at the outset of this chapter, and that's no small news. And in the design of the temple, 
the altar sits outside in a courtyard, around, which is around the building that contains the holy place and the holy of holies. And then that courtyard area is itself contained behind another fence or barrier in the design of the tabernacle and of the temple. And that outer wall separates Jews from Gentiles who are in the court outside. And John is told to measure only the courtyard where the altar is and the worshipers gathered there, not those outside because those are the nations and they are not of concern at this point. So what is the point of those instructions? Well, the point of those instructions is to focus our attention on three facts concerning the mid-tribulation moment. First, as we enter into the mid-tribulation moment, we learn that there is a temple operating in Israel and the Jewish people are worshiping there. Now you may remember that the event that Daniel told us would start the tribulation, that gives rise to the seven years, that starts the clock, what was that event? The covenant that would be signed between the Antichrist and the many, which was a reference to the people of Israel, and it would allow for grain offering and sacrifice again, which is a way of saying the temple again. Here you see in Revelation a confirmation that that agreement was struck the temple does exist, it is in use, so it's been there for a while, and that means you know, certainly three and a half years into the seven, that's what you'd expect to see, because the agreement that allowed it to even come to bear, to be possible, was struck three and a half years earlier. Okay, that's the first thing that we note. Along with that, it's interesting to note that despite the war and the supernatural calamities and the earthquakes and the hails and you know, all the stuff we've been reading about, nonetheless, it looks like business as usual at the temple. And that's pretty remarkable. What it suggests is that the Lord has been sparing Israel from most, if not all, of these disasters. Certainly anything too big to, to bring a temple down has not happened there. And that fits with what I said earlier from Revelation 6 when we looked at the seal judgments and I said the one that said protect the wine and the oil, I told you that's a bit inscrutable but in my understanding of it, it was a, uh, a bit of a, an oblique reference to Israel, uh, a kind of coded way of saying Israel. Why? Well, Israel is known in the Bible as grapes or olives or figs or etc. And so you have here uh, two things that represent Israel. Wine comes from grapes, oil comes from olives, and so the, the idea is that he, those two things being preserved is a way of saying preserve Israel. That's, that's my best guess, but in any event, it's clearly been protected enough that the temple can operate. And if so, imagine what that means to the Jew. Those who are there worshiping, wouldn't the fact that the world is being torn asunder and yet remarkably, your little patch of the world and your temple particularly seems okay. Wouldn't that reinforce in your mind that your God is on your side? And wouldn't that then reinforce your desire to return to that God and to worship at that temple? That would be like a safe place. And a Jew might find that reassuring for obvious reasons. So it would seem as though that while the rest of the world is in turmoil, cursing the name of God, as we've already seen, Israel is at rest to some degree and in worship of that same God. And there seems to be God's effort in that to uplift his own people while making the rest of the world take note of that. That's very consistent with the pattern of God we've seen in past times. All right, first thing you learn. Second thing you learn is that the existence of the temple does not mean that the age of the Gentiles has ended. 
Remember, we've said the age of the Gentiles, according to Daniel again, is a period of history in which Israel is being trampled by foreign Gentile powers, their city trampled, their, their freedoms taken from them, and so on. Well, here we hear now that they're in their city with their temple active and, and worshiping. That might suggest that they've moved past the point of the age of the Gentiles and they've come back now to a place of peace in their land. Except that we see in verse two, John says, the Gentiles continue to tread down the holy city. That little reference there is intended to remind us that the age of the Gentiles, as Jesus defined it in Luke chapter 21, that it would be a period in which all the Israelites would be led captive and Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot until this time is completed, that that's still underway. And of course that makes sense. We remember as we studied in Daniel 9, I'm sorry, in Daniel 2, the statue, Daniel 7, the beasts. When we studied all that, we learned that this whole period of history will play out until Christ's second coming. Christ's second coming is what ends the age of the Gentiles. We're not there yet. So that trampling is ongoing, and it's about to get a whole lot worse. And that brings us to the third and final important detail that you learn from the opening of chapter 11, and that is you get your mid-tribulation reference there. I told you to look for these, and this is the first of them we'll see. I told you that these references are telling you what you're reading in this chapter is connected to the middle of tribulation. Or here's another way to say it. Whenever you see the references, what's the one you see here? 40, it was on the screen earlier, 42 months, right? All right, it's not just some little game to to make note of. What it's saying to you in code is this chapter tells you why the middle of tribulation is important. What happens in this chapter explains why something changes at mid-trib. That's what you're learning, okay? So now we go into the text to find out what that change is in this chapter. Verse three, he says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, Fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies so that if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. All right, well, clearly we're into some new material. John just sort of drops us right into a new scene. Two prophets on on the stage here. Uh, We've been hearing about the temple just two verses earlier, and now suddenly we're talking about two prophets. And at first you may feel like that's just totally disconnected, but in reality you're gonna see how closely connected these two are in a minute. So John says these men prophesy for 1260 days. There's another of our three ways of describing time, right? So it's another reference to mid-trib. Lest we think that only the temple part of this chapter has something to do with mid-trib, no, the two prophets do as well. And so John connects two things here. He connects the operation of the temple in Jerusalem with the ministry of these two men. I want you to understand that. The fact that they're put together in this way is intentional so that as you imagine the temple operating, what do you now imagine? Two guys right in the middle of it. They're at the temple. This is where they live, okay? And during the time that the temple stands, which how long will the temple be operating under Jewish control during this period of time? Three and a half years. How do I know that? Because remember Daniel 9, when it told us that the start of the seven years was that covenant, he goes on to say in 9 that the middle of the week, which is half of the time or three and a half years, 
The Antichrist who, who struck that covenant and made it possible, that same man will turn around at mid-trib and reverse himself and put an end to what he allowed. So that tells us that the temple operates under Israel's control for only the first half of the tribulation. And during that time that the temple stands, 42 months, is the same length of time that these two men will prophesy in their ministry, 1260 days. So at the same time that the temple is operating, these guys are in the temple operating. So they are called the Lord's two witnesses. And what is a witness? Well, a witness is someone who testifies concerning the truth in some matter. And we're reminded what the law says concerning the necessity of witnesses prior to a judgment. In, for example, Deuteronomy, God says in the law 19.15 to Israel, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So before the law could condemn anyone for their sin, their offense had to be confirmed by the testimony of at least two witnesses. That becomes a standard in Israel, and it's a standard that reflects God's heart, too, that we would be double sure before we take freedom or life from someone. And so the ministry of these two men... As witnesses, God calls them as witnesses, it serves the purpose of a testimony, but in this case, a testimony of condemnation. They are two witnesses to condemn the world of its sin prior to judgment. Now, when we talk about witnessing, we typically do it from a different point of view. I'm a witness for Christ, someone would say, and when we use the term witness, we're thinking of one of the two possible ways that you can witness, because there are two, not just one. One, one purpose is to be uh, a messenger of the truth such that a person would be convicted by it, repent because of what they learn, and receive the truth of the gospel, be saved by their faith in that, and so on. That's the one we're hoping for. But a second purpose of witnessing is to testify concerning someone's sin for the purpose of convicting and condemning them, which is more of the kind of witness you see at a trial, for example. So you don't control the outcome when you witness. That's God. So you give the same witness, that is through your actions, through your words, hopefully you're doing it all the time. Your witness is ever present. To some people it becomes an opportunity for salvation. To others it will be to their condemnation. You don't control that and nor do you give much thought to it because what are you gonna do about it anyway? But the fact that it's happening is reality. That's how God works. So their ministry, it would seem, would function to both purposes, perhaps, but especially or largely for the latter of those two, that is, for the purpose of condemnation. They wear only sackcloth, uh, we're told. Uh, that is a traditional garb of prophets who are in mourning or in suffering, which came with the job, if you were a prophet. And they have supernatural power, John says, uh, like the 144,000 of chapter 7, when we studied that, we get, most people stop at about this point and get completely distracted with speculation over who these guys are. And oh my gosh, you have books on this. The fact that they're not identified is supposed to tell you it don't matter. Forget about it. Don't try to guess. It's pointless. Even if you're right, you're just guessing and it makes no difference. So there is no purpose in trying to identify who they are. It's, it's immaterial. It's completely pointless. They're not selected because of who they are. They're kept anonymous because it doesn't matter who they are. For all we know, they're absolutely no one. They're just two guys. 
And then, if that takes some of the fun out of it for you, well, maybe, maybe that's okay because I got some different fun for you instead. That's not the fun you're supposed to have. I mean, is it Elijah? Is it Moses? Is it? No, it doesn't matter. It's none of those guys. It couldn't be any less important. What, what matters? Why they exist and what they're doing. So, uh, in fact, some people have gone so far as to think that they're entirely symbolic, and one of the craziest suggestions I've heard of late is that they were actually representations of the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. And that when the World Trade Centers fell, that was the fulfillment of this. You see how stupid people get. Why? Because they get enamored in all of that nonsense instead of paying attention to what it's actually about. I mean, that's actually out there. You can go find that. Anyway, uh, the, the really sad thing is the speculation about who they are is so completely unnecessary because it's actually given to us in the text, in a, in a sense. John tells us in verse 4, these are guys you've heard about before and probably read about before if you're a student of Old Testament prophecy because he says they're the two olive trees, they're the two lampstands before the, the Lord of the earth. What he's talking about, he says the, the, because he's saying you should remember this. It's not some, something new, this is something you've heard. It takes us back to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter four. Now, I'm gonna read the whole chapter and then I'm gonna go back and kind of put it in its context, but this is what John is referring to. He says, verse one of Zechariah four. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me, and as a man who is awakened from his sleep, he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side. And then I said to the angel who was speaking with me saying, what are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by my might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things, but... These seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. And then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? I answered the second time and said to him, what are those two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered me and saying, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And then he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. It's a chapter that's hard to explain in a short time given the context because there's stuff going on all around it. But here's a short version. Uh, Zechariah as a book was written shortly after Daniel was written, shortly after Ezekiel was written. It's in that same general time of history, uh, right about the time that the Jews were coming back from Babylon and their exile. So it's just a little later than the things Daniel revealed. And if you remember what Daniel taught us, that there was gonna be 70 years of exile because of the land Sabbaths that they ignored. And then after the 70, a new 490 starts, 77s, and that was for their failure to keep the covenant. So they had these back-to-back punishments going on. The first 70 in Babylon, the next 490, plus a pause for the church, would include their scattering and their trampling. All right, so 
after the 70 years of exile was up, that first punishment, I call it, then they were allowed to return to the land. Cyrus of Persia gave the right for them to go back and build their temple. Uh, but when they get back, the first of the exiles, when they go back, there's not much there. In fact, there's nothing there. There's a, there's a foundation and that's it from the prior temple. And it took them 49 years to eventually rebuild and complete that temple and the wall around it and everything. Remember Daniel's 77s? The first count was seven sevens, that's 49. And in that 49-year period, the Lord keeps talking to his people Israel through various prophets, including Zechariah. So he's one of the men who was talking to the people of Israel while they're in that rebuilding time period. And his book generally speaks to Israel about the Lord restoring their fortunes both in that time and in a future time, while also judging the nations that are around Israel for the way that they treated Israel. And in particular, the Lord assures Israel that his servant, Zerubbabel, the man who originally left with the exiles and was the first to to lead the people back into the land and begin to rebuild their temple, that man would finish the temple. But here's the thing, he didn't live to finish it. And what he is saying in this chapter is, not by might, that is not by human effort does anything get done for God, but only by his spirit. God's spirit alone does everything God does through men, through women, as he chooses, or without us, for that matter. But the point is, if something happens, you don't credit the person. So while the building of the temple got delayed and it looked like it was never gonna happen, in fact, Haggai tells the story of how the Israelites were stealing the materials that were intended for the temple and building their own homes with it. They got so bored building the temple, they started building their own homes instead with the materials that had been brought in to build the temple. So it was a bit of a mess for a while. And to Zechariah, God gives this vision. And there's a lampstand prominent to the vision, and then there's olive trees on either side. And he's trying to figure this out. What is all this about? And Zechariah is told that the lampstand is a representation of not by power and might, but by my spirit. So in other words, the lampstand and the oil particularly represents the spirit of God at work. And that's often how oil is used in the Bible, to represent the spirit or the anointing of the spirit. And He's saying, effectively, the Zerubbabel that started this will finish it. But you have to understand what he means. He means Zerubbabel didn't start it. He happened to be there. He was a man. God used him, but it wasn't him doing it. God started it. And the same God that started it is going to finish it. And so if you're worried that because Zerubbabel's not around anymore, we're never going to get this project done, you don't understand how I do anything, is what God is saying. So Zerubbabel's start will also be Zerubbabel's finish, and the temple itself will be done, don't worry, Zechariah. That's what the oil represented. But then he says, well, what about these two olive trees on either side? Now, how do olives relate to lampstands generally? The oil comes out of the the olives to fill the lampstands, right? So that's the earthly connection. What he's told by the angel is that these olive trees represent the two sons or as it says here in the text, the two anointed ones. The literal Hebrew here actually is not anointed ones. The the literal Hebrew reads two sons of oil. Well, if you're a son of oil, that's like saying you're anointed by God. So the lampstand represents the work of God through his spirit, and these two olive trees represent the, the anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now that that's where this prophecy gets really confusing. In fact, if we didn't have Revelation 11... I defy you to make sense of it because I think it would be impossible. 
It takes Revelation 11 to make sense of the olive, stands, uh, olive trees because what we find is that these two men, the sons of oil, will have a worldwide ministry, the, the, the book of Zechariah says. They will be, it says, standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Now that's a bit of a cryptic phrase to us. We don't know quite what that means. Let me tell you what it means. It means literally their ministry will impact every person on the earth. They stand by or they serve the Lord of the earth. Now it's hard to imagine how any one person could have a worldwide impact. I don't just mean that they're known throughout the world like Billy Graham was known everywhere. I'm talking about no human being was not touched by their ministry. That's what it means. How can that be true? Even Paul, you couldn't say that even about Paul. So how can that be true? Well, now in Revelation 11:4, we're told that the two men that we're seeing here, the two witnesses, John says, these are the two olive trees and lampstand. They are connected to Zechariah 4. And it will come now in the rest of this chapter that you and I were gonna discover how it is that these two men have an impact on every human being on the planet. That's now what we get to learn. This chapter, in a sense, is the second part of Zechariah 4. And you put the two together, you get the whole story. So, back to chapter 11. We're told these two men have a supernatural protection. And because of that, they can prevent their enemies from harming them. In fact, they, they make fire, and, and we have to take this literally. There's no other reason, there's no other way to take it from what's written here. They literally have fire come out of their mouth. They're like, they're like flamethrowers. And as a result, anyone who tries to come and harm them, they can stop them. They can destroy them at a distance, it would seem. That's quite a superpower. You know, if you're going to have one, that's, that one's pretty, I mean, you can't use it everywhere. It's kind of limited. But the question that raises is, why are these guys so hated? Why do they need this defense? Well, the next verse kind of explains it for you. They possess this power because they also have power to make life on earth utterly miserable for everyone. They can stop rain from falling, and in fact, they do so during the entire time of their ministry. All right, so add that to what you know already about the first half of tribulation. No rain falls on earth for three and a half years. Additionally, they can turn water to blood. They can strike the earth with every plague, which I think means anything you've already read about, they can do it. And they can do it as often as they desire. Now, we know from that why you would find people seeking to harm these guys. On, you know, running at them, you know, t- taking guns to shoot them, whatever they might have. Uh, and that's why the Lord has given them the ability to protect themselves so that they can function in this role for the full three and a half years without anyone stopping them. So we know these guys were prophesying to the world for three and a half years, and in that time they could not be harmed. Meanwhile, they themselves are bringing great harm on the earth, and naturally everyone hates them. Now, that does not sound like a recipe for a very successful ministry, right? What is the point in this? We don't even know what they're saying. They're not even telling us here in the text what they're prophesying about or what they're proclaiming. Let's make some educated guesses. I don't think it's hard to guess here. Uh, It's likely they're declaring the end of the world has come. They're declaring the judgments, perhaps even before they come on the earth at that time. Uh, And if that's right, and I think it's a fair assumption that they're talking about the events of tribulation as they happen. If that's correct, then here's how you have to see these two guys. They are the narrators of tribulation. As the world experiences what it's experiencing, which if you think about it, you wouldn't know what was going on. You would be completely 
at, at your limits. But now you've got this to these two guys who are speaking consistently to the world about whatever is happening and its meaning. They're providing an explanation to accompany the seal and trumpet judgments so that no one is missing the point of what all this activity is about. And so in that sense, they testify, they witness to the truth of God's purpose in all that's happening. But here's the most interesting thing about these guys. They are gifted by God to do exactly the same kinds of disasters that are already happening anyway. You notice that? While Jesus is up in the heavens producing drought by holding back the four winds, remember we saw that from the four angels, right? That, that stopped the rain too. These guys are doing the same thing. Jesus is turning seas to blood. These guys are turning water to blood. Jesus is bringing plague after plague. These guys are bringing plague after plague. It's like, why do we need these guys if we've already got Jesus doing it? I mean, I can see why they need to talk and explain, but why do they need to do the same things Jesus is doing? Why the duplication? Here's your answer. Think about it from the point of view of the people on the earth. All right, They can't see what Jesus is doing in heaven. They only see what happens on earth. And now they're also seeing two guys doing it and having the power to do it. So naturally, what do you conclude if you're living through these days? Yeah, you're gonna see these guys as the specific cause of all tragedy that's coming upon the earth. So during the first three and a half years of tribulation, they get blamed for every bad thing that's happening. And that ensures something that God wants to see. This ensures that the world connects the events to their explanations. In other words, if they were just two crackpots making stories up on the corner and doing nothing of any importance apart from that, how many other nutcases are there running around the world during this same period of time blaming global warming or aliens or Brexit or who knows what they're pinning it on, right? Think, right? That's human nature. You would have had all kinds of people saying, this is what it means. No, this is what it means. The world's coming to the end. No, it's the polar, vorse, you know, the polar opposites of the whatever. Next thing you know, no one knows what to believe. But these two guys, they're doing it too. And so the, the power they have validates their message, and it causes the focus of the world to be on them for a time, which is God's purpose. In other words, God wants the world to blame these men and to take it out on them. And it will lead to a very interesting conclusion that Paul later calls a great delusion. We'll come back to that in later chapters. But the Lord appoints these men to be the poster children, the scapegoats, for all of what happens during the first half of tribulation, but only for the first half. And at the end of three and a half years, when we reach the midpoint of tribulation, their time is up. Let me show you this slide before we get back to the text. I, brought, I put this together to show you, here's how you put their activity in with the rest of what we've seen. This is a sort of an overview of the first half of tribulation. You should recognize most of the stuff that's on there. The last things there at the end are just the uh, trumpet judgments, all but the last one. So then we hit this midpoint, and what we're hearing is that during all of this same time, you've got the two witnesses doing their part as well in the temple. Okay, that, and so from the earth's point of view, it's all the same. It's all coming from them. All right. Now we can go to the text. Verse seven, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and the tribes and the tongues and the nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. 
And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So John says these men will finish their testimony after three and a half years and then the Lord allows them to be killed. Verse seven, they will be overcome, he says, by a beast that comes up out of the abyss. Now we know what the abyss is, right? We studied that back in chapter nine when we were looking at the trumpet judgments. We learned that that's the place where the Lord confines the demonic angels, the fallen angels, the disobedient ones who've been especially bad and need to be contained and he lets them loose to do their work in this time. So the beast is coming from there in a sense, and that means we know he's connected to the demonic realm. At this point, that's all we'd know, uh, except maybe also the fact that the term beast is reminding us of something we studied in Daniel. Remember the four beasts, right? But beyond that, we don't really have anything else to go on right now, and that's fine, and you're gonna learn a lot more about this beast in coming mid-trib chapters. This is just a brief introduction to him. We'll come back to him. Anyway, after these two guys are killed, then we hear that their bodies are left unburied for a time to dishonor them, it seems, and they're visible in the great city. Now, the city's unnamed, but you can clearly tell which one it is because it's the one Jesus was crucified in. That's Jerusalem. But John says it's also mystically called Sodom and Egypt. Now, Sodom was a city of great depravity. That's back in the time of Lot, you remember. And Egypt, it's a nation, not a city, But Egypt was a nation that's prominent in Scripture for one reason more than anything else. They were the first nation to introduce idolatry into Israel. Israel's idolatrous heart started while they were in captivity, actually when they were in Goshen, and then while they were in Goshen, they became idolaters, Ezekiel says. That led led God to put them in captivity under the Pharaoh to prevent them from pursuing their idolatry. Then, after a period of time in captivity under Pharaoh, they're let go and they come into the desert. We find out in the desert wanderings that they brought their idols with them. And then after they get into the land, they bring their idols again. So the idolatry of Israel that's always been present through the history of their span in the land began because they were in Egypt for a time. And they took those idols with them. Ezekiel tells us that. So when you hear Sodom, you, you think of the poster child of depravity, And when you think Egypt, you should think the origins of idolatry for Israel, the stumbling block for his people. And so at the point that these events are going on in mid-trib, John says that you can just as easily call Jerusalem Sodom or Egypt, which is simply a way of saying this city has become a, a place of great depravity and great idolatry at this point in history that we're talking about, at the mid-trib point. Later, when we get to more detail on the beast, you're gonna realize why the city is called Sodom and Egypt. It's connected to what the beast is doing at that time. All right, after they die, their bodies are left unburied, and during this time, the whole world is aware of this, and they're all celebrating the death of these guys in a way that the world has never seen before. You know, you can't think of a holiday that the whole world celebrates. This one will be the first. Everyone will celebrate their death. They'll be giving gifts to each other because these guys died. And why? Well, now you have a better sense if you didn't know already These guys have been credited with every bad thing for the last three and a half years, and now they're dead. Not a better reason to celebrate if you're the rest of the world. Remember I said the world is gonna conflate their activity with that of of God in these plagues, so they're gonna see it all as a solution. Can you imagine how much the world must have hated these guys? I mean, I don't even know what that would have felt like. How much can one, two people be hated? These guys hit the target. And... 
I mean, think about it. Just after the first world judgment, just after those five months of stinging, you get that stinging over with, you're like, I'm going to go get those guys right now. Right? The whole world would have been, you see 20 guys, though, flame thrown, you know, flame beaten by those guys, and you think, oh, I guess we can't do it. But you're still hating them. That's what the whole world is feeling. And uh, as soon as these guys are dead, um, they're celebrating. And I think it's something like the feeling of, of V-Day. You know, V-E or V-J. The idea that the world war is over. We've finally beaten them. Uh, and now what do you think of the guy who kills them? What do you think of the guy who finally, somehow, was able to take these two guys out? You would celebrate that guy as a world hero, wouldn't you? Remember who did it? The beast. So how are these men connected to the operation of the temple? Because we started this chapter by saying they were in the temple, working there, and these are being associated by John in this chapter. He wants us to connect these two in this chapter. Well, according to Zechariah 4, these men will conduct their ministry from the temple. And so, during the first half of tribulation, the Lord is, I think, using these guys as a form of protection for the nation and for their temple so as to ensure that at least three and a half years that temple is undisturbed and it can be operating and no one takes it from them. Because even if you don't have anything against Israel per se or against the temple necessarily, there's always bad actors out there looking to disrupt, right? But if you got the two fire, flame, breathing killers in there, you don't go into the temple. You don't mess with it. They're the guards, of the, even though that's not their primary role. Nonetheless, they, they serve that purpose as well. And that's why in the narrative of Revelation 11, the operation of the temple is associated with the ministry of these two men, and that's why it's not a coincidence that when one goes away, the other goes away, because it's connected. It's also not a coincidence that the beast takes away both. All right, there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff kind of connecting here that we're gonna develop. All right, let's go back to Revelation 11. There's more coming. Revelation 11, verse 11. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So after three and a half days, and you can sense already what it would have felt like, right? They're celebrating the death of these guys. All of a sudden, boop, they're back on their feet. Naturally, just the, the fact that someone's being resurrected in front of you probably you know, freak, freaks out a lot of people all by itself. But much more than that, I think, more than the miracle of, of resurrection, they fear the prospect of these guys going back to work. So they're thinking this is now a return to that set of circumstances, and they become terrified. But almost immediately, we hear the witnesses are called to heaven by the Lord, and as their enemies watch, they're taken up. So what was the message to the world in all of that? The message is God approved of these men. Right? God's removal of them, his resurrection and removal, is evidence that God approves of them, and therefore what they did and what they said is of God. So in effect, he's saying to the world, you're rejoicing a little prematurely because your biggest concern shouldn't be those guys, your concern should be the God behind those guys who gave them that power. And it's in these things you now see Zechariah's promise fulfilled. The promise Zechariah gave or was given by the angel was that these men would have a worldwide impact in their ministry. They would stand by the Lord of the earth as a phrase. It means to have the power to affect the whole earth. 
Not a person on the earth has not heard of these men, doesn't know the impact of these men, hasn't experienced the impact of these men. Not a person on the earth wasn't happy when they heard that they had died. And not a person on the earth is happy to hear that they've come back to life. The whole thing is worldwide in its impact. Now, you may have heard at some point people speculating on this particular chapter when it comes to this worldwide attending to these men. Some have said, oh, this is proof that it required our modern technology to come along before anything of Revelation could have ever come to pass because so many people wondered, how could it be that a whole world could know of something happening at just one place on the earth? And the answer was, oh, television, internet, ah, now we see how God's gonna do this. Wrong, because by the time we get to this point at the three and a half year point, you got no TV, you got no power, you got no nothing. The world's been devastated. In fact, most of the world doesn't exist. I mean, it's just part of the world at this point. So this is not a result of modern technology. The point here is that the whole world has been impacted by these men, by the supernatural judgments, by the fact that the world is is being ransacked by God and these men appear to be the cause of it. And so their death is a quick spreading discussion and they're coming back to life the same. Look, the whole world's giving gifts because they've died. This is not because everyone's watching it on YouTube. This is just because the magnitude of what they did made the whole world focus on them. And how fast news got around, it doesn't matter. It didn't take long when everybody's focused on it. All right, we know these men are connected to mid-trib. There is a little question that we have to answer before we move on, and that's a question sometimes that gets debated about this point, but it's really not hard to answer. The question some would ask is, did these guys operate in the first half of tribulation or in the second half? Because three and a half years, we don't necessarily know which half we're talking about, right? Well, we know in this case, it's obvious in this case, that they're operating in the first half. Because as you look back at the chapter we just taught on, you see multiple references to that. First, the timeline simply can't fit if you put it in the second half of tribulation because we know that exactly three and a half years from midpoint, from the midpoint onward, three and a half years later, to the day Jesus returns. Daniel told us that, okay? But we're told these men serve for a full three and a half years and then are dead for an additional three and a half days and then resurrected, all right? So those extra few days, they may not add up to much. I realize it may just be a little bit of a rounding error to you, but it's still more than three and a half years, which means you'd be saying those things happen after Jesus has come back and they're leaving. None of that makes any sense. So it doesn't fit the timeline. Secondly, we, we are told these men will be killed by the beast who comes up from the abyss. Another way to say that is, at the rise of this beast, his first action, or one of his initial actions, will be to kill these men. Well, as you learn in a couple of chapters from now, the rise of the beast happens at mid-trib. So if they're being killed at mid-trib, it means they were operating for the first half, obviously. And then finally, the last verse of the chapter seals it. If you didn't believe me enough, or believe enough already, look at the last verse. The second woe is past, Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. That will tell you that we've moved past the two of three woe judgments. And as I've shown you on the charts already, we know that the, the three woe judgments are the last three of the trumpets. Of those, the last of those is all seven of the bold judgments. I lost you yet? So the first woe judgment, which was the fifth of the, of the trumpets, was the demonic scorpions. The sixth uh, trumpet, which was the second woe, was the army of 200 million that went out killing a third of the earth. Remember that? Okay. The final one yet to come is the bold judgments. We haven't seen that yet. 
But as I told you already, those first two woe judgments happen in the first half of tribulation. So here we are at the end of 11, and John is saying two have come, one is yet to go. That tells you that we're at that midpoint. We've come through two of them, and we're waiting for that last one yet to come. So all of the data lines up. These guys have been operating, much like the 144,000, but in a different way. And they're now done, and so mid-trib is the end of them. All right. Now, that leads us to a brief moment at the end of the chapter, and this kind of looks forward to the end. It's sort of a conclusion for the night, but there's a couple things we're gonna do before we end. Let's go to chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign, and the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds, and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. So here's that seventh and final angel that we've been waiting to hear, the seventh trumpet, which as you remember, now that seventh trumpet is the seven bowl judgments. And uh, at the sounding of that trumpet, there are voices in heaven which declare that the world has now become the kingdom. In other words, at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, that is leading us to Christ's second coming, and that itself leads us into the long-promised kingdom. And at that, the proclamation results in elders falling to their knees and worshiping God and so on. Now, we're meant to live in bodies and to live on earth. And I have to imagine that the saints who are in heaven during these short years of tribulation are especially eager now to see the kingdom because not only have they been waiting since whenever they died, but now after the rapture, they've received their bodies. So they're in heaven in their bodies, which isn't really where they're meant to stay. That's just for now. The body is meant to live on earth. That's why it was made. So in effect, they have to be looking forward to coming back more than anyone could at that point because they're the closest anyone has ever been to it. They're all dressed and ready to go, and they're just waiting for the opportunity to get down there, right? So as they hear that seventh trumpet blow, it's like the doorbell ringing. Okay, time to go down there. Let's, we're, we're happy to see it. And they, they begin to praise God for his fulfillment of that promise. And they start retelling effectively the events of, of tribulation. The nations were enraged. And then God's wrath came, which is a reference to the, the bold judgments that are now being started or being announced. And after that, a time to judge the dead and to reward the believer. And then the kingdom and then the temple opens and an ark in the heavenly temple appears. Now, if you didn't know this already, the temple that has been given to Israel in the law is a pattern from what is actually present in heaven. So there's an actual temple in heaven, an actual ark in heaven. And that's what's kind of seen from the earth, it would appear. And then following that, you have supernatural disasters that come upon the earth. Where does this fit into our timeline? Well, this is, for lack of a better way of putting it, this is a preview of coming attractions. We are still in the mid-trib chapters. We've just begun the mid-trib chapters. So this is foreshadowing where the story is going. In fact, you're going to see this preview once more. 
In chapter 15, which is the chapter I told you leads you out of mid-trib and gets you back into the judgments of the second half, when we get to 15, if you want to look there on your own, you'll notice a very similar moment plays out a second time. So it's, it's kind of like when you're watching a TV show and they're trying to get you to stay on till the end, and every time they take a commercial break, they give you some foreshadowing about the end, and you're like, oh, I wish they'd just get to it. Well, that's what this scene is. This is the moment the trumpet is, is blown, yes, but only in the sense that it's sort of setting you up for when it's actually going to play out. Not until we get to chapter 16 do the events of those seven bold judgments actually take place. But this is just letting you know it's coming. It's coming. We're moving there. All right. We're going to pause there. What we do when we get back is go into chapter 12 and 13 as a unit. We're going to try to do those together in a week. Uh, We'll see if we can do it, but that's the goal. Because those two chapters are at the center of all that happens in Revelation, and they really focus our attention on the Antichrist and his role. What it will do is it will bring together the little bit you learned tonight and some things from past weeks and the stuff you learned in those two chapters so that you get a much better understanding an almost news report-like blow-by-blow account of what's going to happen at the mid-trib moment, the story of all that's going to happen and why it's so important to the rest of the book. All right, so this is a setup to that. The rest of it is coming in those next two chapters. So what that means is if you fall asleep, forget decide to move, change your life in some other way over the holidays and fail to come back here, you're going to miss the most important lesson you could probably hear, at least until the next one I tell you that is the most important lesson. (laughs) Uh, Father, we, we heard about witnesses tonight in a very unique way, but let it be a reminder, Father, for us, we'll all be going out of here in the week and uh, two weeks to come uh, with family, friends, traveling at home, wherever, in our celebration of the holiday. And I'm sure many of us will have uh, people we will see, perhaps people we don't see very often. And I pray, Father, that the idea of being your witness will be on our hearts. And in some cases, that might mean conversations. And we pray for that opportunity. We ask you for it. In other cases, it'll just be silence, but how we hold ourselves, how we respond to insults, how we accept compliments, how we serve others when no one wants to do the dishes, how we uh, respond to the tensions, trials, and and like that come with being around family sometimes. Father, all the events that the next two weeks hold for us, Father, I pray that our witness uh, would be important because, Father, in, in what we saw tonight, it is clearly something that you take very seriously. So, Father, give us opportunity through it. And bring us back here in a couple weeks as you may allow, and let us continue in our study. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.